Hi. <clears throat> I'm Lone Candle. Is the Russian invasion of Ukraine the West's fault? Did Western actions facilitate Russia's behavior? And could different actions have prevented the war? Those are different questions with different answers. From the outset, I want to make clear, the bulk of the blame and moral fault goes on Vladimir Putin. No one forced his hand. His country wasn't under imminent threat. He chose to invade a democratic country and is responsible for the havoc wreaked upon Ukraine, Russia, and the world. That said, from a foreign policy perspective, the West should strive to take actions that have the best chances to produce greater security and prosperity. So, did the West make mistakes that made this conflict more likely? Was expanding NATO into Eastern Europe a key cause of this conflict? Was promising expansion to Ukraine a key cause? Could Russia's concerns have been dealt with more effectively? Did the West properly take into account the risks of its actions? Expanding NATO to its current borders was certainly a facilitating condition, but NATO expansion itself wasn't a key cause. A key cause was how the West dealt with Ukraine. The Russians have been sensitive about NATO expansion from the beginning. They've been especially sensitive about Ukraine. This is not just a Putin thing. Many Russians and Russian leaders have been wary about NATO expansion and defensive over influence in Ukraine. By promising NATO expansion to Ukraine, by supporting the overthrow of Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych, by offering a European economic agreement, the West knew, or should have known, that this risked aggressive Russian military action. The West chose to take these actions and should have known the risks. It's not clear to me that the risks were ever worth it. And therefore, not only did NATO and Western actions facilitate this war, these actions may have been a mistake. Russia has four huge concerns about Ukraine, all of which they well advertised and the West was aware of. 1. A military security concern. 2. The close cultural and historical links between Russia and Ukraine that makes Russians see Ukrainians as brothers who belong to the same sphere of influence. 3. Russia's identity as a great power that is linked to influence in or control of Ukraine. And 4 regime security dealing with the possible influence of a brotherly neighbor such as Ukraine becoming a successful democracy. Even if you disagree with all four of these, even if you think the concerns are not based in reality or that they are not morally justified, that doesn't close off their importance. It matters that Russia has these concerns, because it is their concerns that will affect their actions. We can decide 
that their concerns are false or unjust, and that we will just act justly and take the risk of their violent actions. But we must recognize this as a risk. We took that risk, and now we're in a proxy war resulting in mass death, the destruction of cities and economies, billions of dollars of military spending, and a possible escalation into World War III and nuclear war. This argument is complicated by that. I don't think the 2022 invasion of Ukraine was done primarily out of concern of military security. If the invasion wasn't about military security, then why would a promise from NATO matter? Because such a promise can facilitate Ukraine's cultural and economic progress westward. This transition would mean Ukraine as a Western democracy. It would mean the imperial and identity-based dreams of Mother Russia being whole again, with Ukraine in Russia's exclusive sphere of influence, would be crushed. It would mean a country that Russians consider kind of Russian would be a successful Western democracy. And if Ukrainians have such freedoms, why can't all Russians? Ironically, the greatest threat of Ukraine joining NATO isn't about militaries or invasions. It's about Russian identity and the threat of democratic regime change in Russia. From 1999 to 2020, 14 former Soviet allies or republics became NATO members. There should have been no confusion by Western foreign policy officials that Russia clearly opposed the eastern expansion of NATO. While sometimes Russian officials talked nice, and other times they talked harsh, they were always against such moves. Such opposition didn't stem from Putin. All Russian leaders complained about NATO expansion, saying it was antagonizing and that it could jeopardize peace. Other elites and the general Russian public have also been against NATO expansion. In 1995, William J. Burns, who at the time was a political officer in the U.S. Embassy in Moscow and is now Biden's CIA director, said, Hostility to early NATO expansion is almost universally felt across the domestic political spectrum. Russia saw NATO as destabilizing, democracy spreading, and anti-Russian. In the 1989 negotiations around the fall of the Berlin Wall, U.S. Secretary of State James A. Baker told Soviet leader Gorbachev that NATO's jurisdiction for forces would not expand one inch east. The U.S. and NATO did not stick to this promise, creating resentment among Russians. Now, at the time, we didn't know that the Soviet Union would collapse so fast, so maybe it's unfair to hold the Americans to a verbal promise made in different times. However, documents make pretty clear that such a promise was made, and the context implies that such a verbal commitment would be normally expected to be kept, even if not in a formal treaty. So, the Russians have a legitimate complaint about a promise being broken, even if there are some mitigating circumstances. That such a promise was liked by the Russians showed that they were concerned about NATO expansion. In 1992, Russian Foreign Minister Andrei Kozirev warned that if the West kept attacking Russian vital interests, Russia would react dangerously. Kozirev was liberal 
and pro-Western. He believed that the acts of the West would produce a backlash that could destroy Russian democracy and its cooperation with the West. In the 1990s, Russian President Yeltsin liked Clinton's proposal to create the Partnership for Peace, which would non-exclusively include many countries and was not a formal alliance. However, Clinton soon also talked about expanding NATO, which Yeltsin warned would turn the post-Cold War era into a Cold Peace. Clinton's Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, said that Yeltsin and his countrymen were strongly against NATO expansion, thinking it exploited Russian vulnerability and moved the line dividing Europe eastward. Deputy Secretary of State Strobe Talbot said that many Russians wondered why NATO would not be disbanded because the Warsaw Pact was disbanded. They saw NATO as still aimed at Russia. After NATO's first round of expansion in 1999, George Kennan warned that the expansion was the start of a new Cold War, saying that the Russians would gradually react quite adversely and it will affect their policies. U.S. Secretary of Defense Robert Gates said the relationship with the Russians was mismanaged and American leaders underestimated Russia's level of humiliation for losing the Cold War. He said missteps like rotating troops through bases in Romania and Bulgaria were needless provocations. In 2007, Putin gave a speech in Munich that was seen as very aggressive. It was an explicit warning of how serious the trouble would be if the West kept aggressively posturing toward Russia. He complained about the U.S. creating a unipolar world with one master and sovereign, calling it pernicious, and said that the fall of the Berlin Wall was partly a choice by Russia in favor of democracy, freedom, and partnership as members of a European family. He protested figurative walls being constructed in Europe, NATO expansion, and military infrastructure on Russian borders. It was more than just NATO expansion that concerned Russia, but NATO and Western actions. Any movement of weapons or troops into Eastern Europe bothered the Russians, and they made this clear. Among actions, Kosovo, Iraq, and Libya were of particular concern. In 1999, NATO bombed the Serbs, a Russian ally, without UN Security Council approval. Seeing former strongmen killed in Libya and Iraq bothered Russian leaders. Putin himself feared that his own populace could one day do that to him. So, Western officials and leaders were well informed by their Russian counterparts that NATO enlargement and the movement of any military equipment or forces east was a great concern to them. Yet, the West moved east anyways. However, NATO expansion to countries other than Ukraine and Georgia did not spark a violent response. Thus, while NATO enlargement was a requirement to get to the Russian red line countries of Georgia and Ukraine, the enlargement before these countries did not cause war. So, it is not NATO expansion by itself that was a key cause to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. However, compared to previous countries, the suggestion that Georgia and Ukraine join NATO may have been more inciting. To determine whether Western actions caused Russia's invasion, the focus should be on Western actions toward Ukraine. Right at the start of NATO expansion in the 1990s, 
Russian officials and commentators warned that trying to bring Georgia and Ukraine into the alliance would bring confrontation and a high risk of war. American foreign policy stalwarts George Kennan and Henry Kissinger repeated these warnings. In 2008, serving as career ambassador for the Bush administration, William J. Burns wrote to Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, Ukrainian entry into NATO is the biggest of all red lines for the Russian elite, not just Putin. In more than two and a half years of conversations with key Russian players, I have yet to find anyone who views Ukraine in NATO as anything other than a direct challenge to Russian interests. Russian leaders were also clear in saying that turning Georgia or Ukraine against Russia would not be acceptable. Like the U.S., Russia has a foreign and security establishment that maintains opinions over time. Much of these beliefs are shared by the general population, and they include wanting no hostile military alliances on Russia's borders and concern for the welfare and rights of Russian minorities in other countries. NATO enlargement, EU expansion, and democracy promotion are like a three-pronged attack on Putin's interests. In 2008, NATO declined to offer a membership action plan to Ukraine, but George W. Bush announced strong support for the eventual membership of Georgia and Ukraine. Putin said those countries joining NATO would represent a direct threat to Russia. A Russian newspaper said that Putin transparently hinted to Bush that if Ukraine was accepted into NATO, it would cease to exist. Russia's invasion of Georgia in 2008 should have been as clear a signal as any that Russia was willing to use military force to stop the further expansion of NATO into key countries. In 1991, Ukraine held a referendum, and 90% voted for independence. In the 2004 Orange Revolution, Ukrainians protested and overturned an election rigged in the favor of the Russian-backed candidate. In 2013, Ukrainian President Yanukovych was close to implementing an EU association agreement that would have moved Ukraine closer to the EU economically. After pressure from Moscow, he reneged on that agreement, intending to join Russia's Eurasian Economic Union instead. In response, Ukrainians demonstrated in mass, including hundreds of thousands of people protesting for weeks. Yanukovych's government killed the dozens, but he fled to Russia in February 2014, with a pro-Western government replacing him. Petro Poroshenko was elected. He maintained a non-aligned posture, stating no intentions of joining NATO. Despite previous signals that flipping Ukraine may lead to Russian aggression, the U.S. was involved in westernizing Ukraine. The U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs estimated in 2013 that the U.S. had spent over $5 billion since 1991 on helping Ukraine. This included funding the National Endowment for Democracy that promotes civil society. The endowment's president once called Ukraine the biggest prize. It supported the opposition against Yanukovych. Senator John McCain went to Kiev, where he showed solidarity with the protesters, had dinner with them, and attended a mass rally. The Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, Victoria Nuland, traveled to Ukraine at least three times to support the protesters and went as far as handing out cookies. In a phone call, 
Newland and U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Geoffrey Pyatt, discussed who they preferred in a new government. Pyatt talked about getting someone with an international personality to come to Ukraine to help midwife the political transition. The two of them were thinking of Biden for the role. The ousting of Yanukovych was less than a decade after the Orange Revolution. Putin felt like he lost Ukraine again. This time, he acted, stealing Crimea from Ukraine and supporting separatists in the east. This was the beginning of the Russian military intervention in Ukraine, demonstrating that Russia was willing to break the norm against using force to take land from neighbors and showing how much Putin considered Ukraine a red line. After the Russian intervention, the Ukrainian parliament prioritized NATO membership, and NATO suspended practical cooperation with Russia. In 2016, NATO rotated four battalion combat groups into the Baltic states and Poland. However, there were still channels of communication and no permanent deployment of substantial combat forces in NATO accession countries. In 2019, the Ukrainian parliament voted for a constitutional change that would help fast-track Ukrainian NATO and EU membership. From 2019 through 2021, more than one NATO heads of state lobbied for Ukraine to get a membership action plan. Ukraine officials were asking for specific conditions for joining NATO. In 2020, Ukraine became one of six enhanced opportunity partners, a status given to close NATO allies like Australia. Russia had concern about Zelensky's policies like banning Russian in schools and state institutions, closing television stations linked to the Russian government, arresting leaders sympathetic with Russia, and working with NATO to strengthen his military. Before the full invasion, Ukraine maintained its goal of joining NATO and held yearly joint military exercises. The U.S. was giving Ukraine training and equipment. Why Russia invaded in 2022 had to do with three baskets of developments. One is developments inside Ukraine. Zelensky started cracking down on pro-Russian forces within Ukraine like oligarchs and media. He also pressured NATO to make good on the promise that Ukraine will join NATO. He wanted a fast track. Additionally, he raised the international profile of Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea by focusing on it in hopes of getting it returned to Ukraine. Another category of developments are those between NATO and Ukraine, including the 2020 Enhanced Opportunity Partnership, weapons training, joint military exercises between Ukraine and NATO countries, and more strategic reconnaissance flights by the U.S. Before 2020, the concern was Ukraine joining NATO. 2020 onward, that morphed into a concern about NATO entering Ukraine and making Ukraine a de facto NATO member. The third grouping is Western developments. The new U.S. President Joe Biden emphasizing China as a main priority, a chaotic Afghanistan withdrawal, Merkel stepping down in Germany, and a new coalition government focused on domestic affairs, French presidential elections, and a French focus on domestic politics, Europeans' failure to fill gas storages adequately, Zelensky not being a popular president in polls, and Ukrainian politics being split between different groups. Russia saw all this as an opportunity to meddle without Western pushback. Furthermore, Syria, Crimea, 
good military exercises, and lots of modern equipment made the Russian military seem high quality. All of these perceived opportunities were a mirage. Mutin signaled his willingness to go to war by making demands coupled with putting 150,000 troops on Ukraine's border for weeks. This action was both costly and put him in a position where backing down without concessions would make him look weak in front of the political elite. At least by February 2021, people were predicting that if the U.S. didn't give security guarantees and a NATO military pullback from Russian borders, there would be war. Before the 2022 invasion, Russia proposed a treaty that would limit NATO. It included a ban on NATO enlargement. It's possible that we could have made a deal at this point, right before Putin invaded. However, Putin has lied repeatedly about his actions, and seems to have a clear desire to bring Ukraine fully into the Russian fold while renewing a Russian empire. So, it may be that no deal was possible except one that basically gave Ukraine to Russia. Putin also was against security assistance to Ukraine. So, to give in would be to make Ukraine even more vulnerable in case there was a Russian attack. In sum, for decades, Russia had made clear that it considered Ukraine a vital interest, and any U.S. leader and official should have known that to flip Ukraine was to risk Russian aggression. Russia invaded Ukraine over four primary concerns, military security, cultural affinity, imperial identity, and fear of democracy. Are the Russian military security concerns legitimate in the first place? Would Ukraine being in NATO pose a real external security threat to Russia? The geography of Eastern Europe makes Ukraine important to the defense of Russia. West of Russia is the huge northern European plain. Russia itself is also pretty flat. This makes invasion from Russia's west relatively easy. The plain is narrowest between the Baltic Sea and the Carpathian Mountains, which is in Poland. The plain widens as it stretches eastward toward Russia. Therefore, rival troops in Ukraine mean if those troops were to invade, they could skip the narrow passes and be able to invade easily on a wide, flat front. This is why many Russian leaders have wanted to control up to the narrow passages for security. Additionally, if invading troops start at Ukraine's eastern border, there is less room for Russians to strategically retreat before important cities can be taken. In 1547, Ivan the Terrible conquered nearby states as a defensive tactic. Such a tactic has been in Russia's strategic culture ever since. Historically, many countries have attacked from the West. In 1601, Poland almost annexed Moscow. In 1708, Sweden invaded. Napoleon did so in 1812, and Germany in 1941. So, there is a history of attacks from this plane and a culture of needing control of neighbors to defend core Russia. Another geographic element 
is Crimea giving Russia access to its only major warm water port, Sevastopol. The idea that a great power wants a sphere of influence for security reasons, that such a power would militarily intervene in its region to protect what it sees as its interests, should not be so strange to Americans. The United States accepts spheres of influence for itself. Ever since 1823, the Monroe Doctrine effectively stated a U.S. sphere of influence in the entire Western Hemisphere. Under this doctrine, the U.S. undermined and overthrew a dozen or more countries. Hell, we almost went to nuclear war to stop the Soviet Union from putting missiles in Cuba. And this American sphere of influence is not a relic of the past. In 2018, U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said the Monroe Doctrine is as relevant today as it was the day it was written. Imagine if Mexico or Canada formed a military alliance with China. Imagine that China tried to provide the training and equipment to defeat Americans in battle. Imagine if China arrayed forces along the Mexican or Canadian borders. How would the United States react? This is how Russia perceives the threat from NATO. Yeah, but is NATO an actual threat? NATO in purpose and actual military posture is not a current threat to Russia. NATO is a defensive alliance. The whole point is to defend against aggression, not invade peaceful countries. It's clear that a major reason why countries want to join NATO is because they have been previously occupied or domineered by Russia and want to protect against that. Their motives are defensive. The idea that NATO would switch its purpose from defending and rallying against foreign attacks to invading a peaceful Russia seems pretty preposterous. Current NATO military forces are not a threat to Russia. Near the Baltic states, Russia has a geographical advantage and a numerical advantage in manpower and in every major category of weapons and equipment. This is true even if we include the standing military of the Baltic countries, NATO rotational Baltic and Polish forces, and NATO forces that would arrive early if there was an attack. Outside of the Baltic, NATO follows the 1990 Conventional Forces in Europe Treaty, which stops countries from amassing the forces needed for offensive war. NATO does not have the forces in Europe to invade Russia. NATO has been lowering military capabilities in Europe since the Cold War's end. Meanwhile, Putin was modernizing and expanding his European forces. NATO is in no position to invade Russia. Missile defense is not a threat either, because Russia could easily overwhelm those defense missiles. Finally, Russia's nuclear arsenal makes a foreign invasion incredibly unlikely. Any invader would have to risk either their forces or their cities being wiped out by nuclear explosions and radiation. Okay, so NATO doesn't appear to have any intention to invade Russia, and they don't even have the forces close to a position to do so. And they'd risk a nuclear war if they tried such a thing. But what if things change? Russia could still perceive NATO as a threat 
because the future may change. NATO, for some reason, may want to invade Russia in the future, maybe to liberate Russians and install democracy. NATO has the economic might to build up its forces to invasion level. Western engineers may advance missile defense technology to the point where Russian nuclear weapons are useless. Maybe Russians would never use nukes in fear that NATO would respond by wiping out major Russian cities. These future threats don't seem realistic, but aren't crazy either. They are not out of the realm of possibilities. When it comes to a nation's security, it makes sense to take broad precautions. Most countries are too weak to have such a luxury. But great powers tend to vigorously exercise this liberty, and there is some sense to not taking a chance when a failure could mean the end of your regime or nation. So, are the Russian military concerns legitimate? They seem doubtful, but not crazy. And ultimately, it only matters if Russians believe they are legitimate, because that is what will determine their actions. And it seems likely that these fears are real, at least to an extent. After 2014, NATO expanded military activities near Ukraine. A British destroyer sailed through Crimean territorial waters. In the Black Sea region, the U.S. flew a strategic bomber 13 miles away from Russia. NATO trained and ran exercises with Ukraine, while also providing the Ukrainians weapons and ammunition. Putin saw this as a direct threat. He made clear that this was a red line and demanded an end to such activities. When the U.S. did not respond, Russia invaded. Many Russians see Ukrainians as part of the same people. They are both Russian brothers and are connected through history, culture, and family. Ethnic Russians in Ukraine are more than a third of the Ukrainian population. If Ukraine joined NATO, this would create a harder border between Russians in Russia and Russians in Ukraine. Russia feared that Ukraine could suppress ethnic Russians and destroy Russian culture and language in Ukraine, and that NATO would not prevent such acts. Some Russians think that in Estonia and Latvia, national governments did not respect the political, educational, and linguistic rights of Russian minorities. So the fear was that Ukraine would do the same. Putin himself has stated that he doesn't even see Ukraine as a real country. In 2022, he said that Ukraine has never had its own authentic statehood. There has never been a sustainable statehood in Ukraine. And that Ukraine was created by Vladimir Lenin, the first leader of the Soviet Union. He has written that Ukrainians and Russians are one people whom he wants to reunite, and has said that Ukraine is a part of Russian historic territory, saying... Let me emphasize once again that Ukraine for us is not just a neighboring country. It is an integral part of our own history, culture, spiritual space. These are our comrades, relatives, among whom are not only colleagues, friends, former colleagues, but also relatives, people connected with us by blood, family ties. Although there is some truth to sentiments like these, much of it is a misreading of Ukrainian history. Nevertheless, many Russians feel this way, and they don't want to see their brothers taken away by the West. Some of them have resentment over Ukraine voting for independence in 1991 and moving further West. 
this initial vote is seen by some as disloyalty. Many Russians identify their country as a great power with rights and privileges not granted to lesser countries. Some see Russia as rightly imperial, with the authority to lord over their neighbors. Part of their self-esteem as Russians is wrapped up in this control over neighboring countries and the respect such power commands on the world stage. Vladimir Putin appears to be a Russian who thinks like this. Status can be important to people's identity and self-esteem. Some status is based on the individual, but other is based on one salient group. A group particularly important to many people is one's country. Putin wants to restore Russia's status. He wants Russia to have the status it deserves. The loss of the Cold War was humiliating to many Russians. In Russia, there was chaos, poverty, and famine. Russia had lost a third of its territory and half its population. NATO expansion east and military interventions in the Balkans, a region once under Russia's sphere of influence, showed Russia's loss of status and power. Putin doesn't want to restore the Soviet Union. He wants Russia to have a Soviet Union level of status. The growth of Western influence in Eastern Europe was caused by Russia's weakness. Putin wants to make Russia strong again. His legitimacy as a leader is at least partially based on making Russia great again, and this includes controlling buffer states. While some Western countries view their former empires with a fair amount of shame or guilt, many Russians hold a positive and nostalgic view of their own empire. Putin's speeches on such topics are emotional. Although it could be an act, he seems like he means it which implies his actions may be caused by a deep-felt need to restore Russia's status and maintain influence over Ukrainians who rightfully should be under the umbrella of Russia. He seems to have been greatly impacted by the fall of the Soviet Union. Putin has been securing his neighborhood with actions in Belarus, Moldova, Transnistria, Georgia, Armenia, Kazakhstan, and Ukraine. According to Condoleezza Rice, Putin's invasion is about the Russian Empire. Because of Russia's historical and identity ties to Ukraine, Ukraine is key to restoring that empire. Crimea was a historical Russian conquest. The city of Sevastopol in Crimea, where the navy base is located, is not only strategically important, but emotionally important. Putin said that he couldn't imagine having to visit NATO sailors in Sevastopol. They should visit Russians as guests not the other way around. After coming to power, Putin turned to dictatorship basically immediately. He took over TV stations, as that is how most Russians got their news at the time. Bill Clinton could tell after a meeting with Putin that the Russian leader was no friend of democracy. By the time of Yeltsin's death, he told close confidence that choosing Putin was a mistake. Putin has cracked down on protests against him and has poisoned rivals. Putin was raised and educated by the Soviet Union, so the Enlightenment and Renaissance familiarity that we take for granted, he may not have. Although Russia became more autocratic during the early 2000s, the economy was good. With the economic decline after 2008, Putin needed to prevent ideological spillover from potentially democratic neighbors. 
Some research shows that regime types like liberal or constitutional democracy can spread in waves over time and geography. Research on color revolutions in the third wave of democratization find a neighborhood effect for the spread of democracy. The mechanisms for this are successful example, social contact across borders, active promotion, contagion, and that international rules and institutions can favor democracy. So Putin fears that successful democracy in neighboring countries could lead to his own people wanting democracy. Ukraine is a particular threat of spillover because of the economic, cultural, and familial connections with Russia. If Ukraine initiates and maintains a relatively free democracy, and if it prospers, the Russian people may ask, why do we live under this strong man when our neighbors live in freedom? Do we need him after all? And many Russians having Ukrainian friends and family would make Ukrainian success more visible to Russians. A liberal democratic Ukraine could prove to the world that culturally Russian people can succeed in democracy. And more importantly, it would prove this to the Russian people. Thus, Putin may desire to prevent rule of law, competitive elections, and free expressions from solidifying in Ukraine. Putin has reason to fear a preference for democracy because of the following protests, revolutions, or attempted revolutions. Serbia in 2000, Georgia in 2003, Ukraine 2004, the Arab Spring 2011, Russia 2011-12, and Ukraine 2013-14. Russia has responded to threats of democracy in its neighborhood before. From 2003 to 2005, people in former Soviet states protested over rigged elections, resulting in the fall of Georgian and Kyrgyz incumbents, and stopping a pro-Russian Ukrainian candidate from taking office. Russia responded with explosive rhetoric about Western-backed anti-Russian plots. These color revolutions created a lot of conspiratorial and anti-Western stories in Russian media. In 2020, Russia placed Belarusian opposition leader Tikhanovskaya on its wanted list to fight against a Belarusian protest movement. Russia sent teams of propagandists, counterintelligence aid, and financial support. Russians helped stage pro-regime marches, and Russia communicated its readiness to provide military support. Such support ensured the power of Belarusian leader Lukashenko and allowed him to repress. Mass protests in Moscow, St. Petersburg, and other Russian cities after fraudulent parliamentary elections in December 2011 could have struck fear into Putin that similar movements could grow and come for him. That said, some argue that Russia doesn't have much to fear from a democratic uprising. Some Russian experts don't see democracy in Russia anytime soon. It is not in their history, and it's not clear that in Russia there's much demand for democracy. The country only had two stints with it. One led to revolution, civil war, and the Soviet Union. The other is associated with economic collapse and international humbling. Russians may fear that democracy would result in poor economic conditions and even civil war. However, Every democratic people in Eurasia and Africa had a long history of autocracy before becoming democratic. And there have been democratic protests in Russia, so we should never cross off Russia one day having a democracy. Putin doesn't seem to, or at least he doesn't cross off that a protest-facilitated regime change could remove him from power.
or worse, Putin was personally very angry about the U.S. supporting democratic uprisings in the Middle East. He was upset and several times watched and talked about the video of Gaddafi's brutal death where he was taken out and shot. This may have hit a chord because he could imagine his people doing that to him. The election of Ukraine's president Yanukovych was considered reasonably fair and free by international observers. So, it can be argued that the overthrow of Yanukovych itself was an unlawful and undemocratic coup. If this was the case, then Western leaders supporting demonstrations that led to this was arguably undemocratic. However, Yanukovych fled partly because he lost the support of his own party. So that would mean there was no actual coup. He just became unpopular because of his actions and then gave in to protests. However, he seems to have fled partially out of threat of violence. So either way, his ousting wasn't exactly a clean exercise of democratic power. Nevertheless, Ukraine was a struggling democracy, and Putin's invasion would instill his will rather than that of the Ukrainians. As messy as Yanukovych's 2014 ouster may have been, in 2022, Ukraine was moving toward becoming a better democracy when Putin invaded. If the grand aims of his invasion were successful, any sort of legitimate democracy in Ukraine would have been over. An additional concern that is worth mentioning is Russia's economic interest in Ukraine. In 2012, a lot of gas was discovered in the Black Sea near Crimea, in Ukrainian territory. Ukraine had begun granting drilling and exploration rights to companies like Shell and Exxon. By taking Crimea, Russia can stop Ukraine from becoming a gas competitor. Russia's invasion of Georgia was also at least partially about oil pipelines. The EU-Ukraine economic deal would have made no trade barrier between the EU and Ukraine, but EU barriers would be up for Russia. Russia has lots of trade with Ukraine, so that barrier could have hurt both countries. The deal also had a line that said Ukraine must follow EU security, which is NATO, although that line could have been ignored. Georgia and Ukraine are near the Volga region, Russia's agricultural heartland, and how it accesses Caspian Sea oil. Control or influence in these countries may make the valuable region less vulnerable. Okay, but why did Putin invade Ukraine in 2022? What was the main concern? I'm not sure. But to stop a military threat stemming from NATO doesn't seem to be the top one. Putin's statements don't make clear what his ultimate goals were, nor that he necessarily invaded for cultural or imperial reasons. But we can look at what were the likely outcomes of this invasion, Putin and Russia's past behavior toward NATO expansion and the possibility of Ukraine joining, and how Russia similarly intervenes in countries not up for NATO membership. Invading to prevent NATO membership probably wasn't necessary. NATO has an unofficial requirement for prospective NATO countries that they must not have any international, ethnic, or territorial disputes. 
NATO doesn't want to subsume such conflicts by adding a new country. By supporting the eastern breakaway regions and taking Crimea, Russia had already made Ukraine's NATO membership incredibly unlikely. Germany and France already said this was blocking Ukraine's accession. This worked on Georgia. In 2008, George W. Bush said Georgia would one day join, but Russia's invasion and support for separatist movements blocked that. France, Germany, and other NATO members did not want to offer a membership action plan while Georgia had an ongoing dispute. So, with his 2014 land grab and intervention, Putin had already made it very unlikely that Ukraine could join NATO. Additionally, all NATO members must agree to adding a new member, so it would only take one country to uphold this rule in order for it to stop Ukraine. It is true that since 2014, NATO has helped improve Ukraine's military, but this military only serves as a defensive threat, not an offensive one. And this is clearly not the same as NATO membership, where all of NATO is committed to defending Ukraine. If the purpose of the 2022 invasion was to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO, then that would mean Putin decided to do a costly and risky invasion out of a great abundance of caution, concerned that maybe one day every single NATO member would allow Ukraine in despite it clearly having a dispute with Russia and separatists. That doesn't sound like a good risk-reward decision, but it's still possible that that was the prime motivator. However, more likely, the motivation was more a combination of imperial, cultural, and democratic threat concerns. Russian hostility seems to correspond with westernizing. Since the end of the Cold War, U.S.-Russian relations have ebbed and flowed. At times, Moscow has spoken positively of its relationship with the West, and other times it has spoken quite critically or even sounded hostile. Russia often complains about Western meddling in the political affairs of Eastern European countries. By meddling, they're usually referring to support of democratization. Russian rhetoric towards such perceived actions tends to be hotter and more consistent than toward NATO enlargement. Russian complaints about NATO tend to rise more after increased democracy than actual NATO expansion. At times, Russian-NATO relations have been quite positive. Yeltsin didn't seem to see NATO as a great threat when in 1997 he signed the Russia-NATO Founding Act and said, What is also very important is that we are creating the mechanisms for consultations and cooperation between Russia and the alliance, and this will enable us, on a fair egalitarian basis, to discuss and, when need be, pass joint decisions on major issues relating to security and stabilities, those issues and those areas which touch upon our interests. In 2000, Putin suggested that Russia one day join NATO. He said that, in the case that Russia's interest will be reckoned with, if it will be an equal partner, Russia is a part of European culture, and I do not consider my own country in isolation from Europe. Therefore, it is with difficulty that I imagine NATO as an enemy. 
George W. Bush and Putin cooperated against terrorism after September 11, 2001. Russia and NATO cooperated here. When Article 5 was invoked to support war in Afghanistan, Putin supported the action in the UN Security Council and gave military assistance. Putin said that Russia acknowledges the role of NATO in the world and was prepared to expand cooperation. He even said that if the format of the relationship could be changed, then enlargement would cease to be an issue and would no longer be relevant. In 2002, NATO announced a plan for expansion to Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Putin barely reacted. In 2001, when asked about these countries joining NATO, he said, We of course are not in a position to tell people what to do. We cannot forbid people to make certain choices if they want to increase the security of their nations in a particular way. In May 2002, Putin was asked about future Ukraine-NATO relations. He said, I am absolutely convinced that Ukraine will not shy away from the process of expanding interaction with NATO and the Western allies as a whole. Ukraine has its own relations with NATO. There is the Ukraine-NATO Council. At the end of the day, the decision is to be taken by NATO and Ukraine. It is a matter for those two partners. End quote. In 2010, when Medvedev was Russia's president, he said that the period of distance in our relations and claims against each other is over now. We view the future with optimism and will work on developing relations between Russia and NATO in all areas as they progress toward a full-fledged partnership. He offered ideas about cooperation on missile defense between Russia and NATO. In this summit, he didn't complain about NATO expansion. NATO and Russia have also cooperated on nuclear proliferation. The large 2004 NATO expansion was responded to with a grumble and criticism by Russia, but not sustained hostile rhetoric. When in 2002 Ukraine declared interest in joining NATO, Russia didn't vehemently object. Ukraine's interest in NATO has waxed and waned, but the waxing of interest didn't produce threats of war. After the 2011 Russian protests, things changed. Before these protests, U.S.-Russian cooperation was relatively high, but these protests ended that, not NATO expansion. During each of the color revolutions, Putin switched to policies more hostile toward the U.S., and claimed NATO threat as the reason. Putin's rhetoric about NATO can't always be trusted, as it is often used more strategically than honestly. For example, in 2022, Russian officials made threats for weeks about Sweden and Finland joining NATO. Then, once it appeared that these countries for sure would join, Putin said that these countries joining NATO was not a threat to Russia. But that threat would respond if NATO bolstered military infrastructure in those countries. In 2014, after taking land from Ukraine, Putin increased his anti-NATO rhetoric to justify his actions. However, the 2014 stealing of Ukrainian land wasn't instigated by some advancement in Ukraine's NATO progress. It was motivated by a pro-Russian leader being forced out of office by protests. And he was forced out because he reneged on a trade agreement with the European Union due to Russian pressure and bribery. Combine this with Putin's rhetoric about the protests and overthrow being a Western plan, and it appears that fear of democratization and loss of Russian influence were more key motivators for the 2014 aggression than NATO or military security. Russian responses to Ukraine seem similar to countries not under NATO control.
consideration. Russia generally seems to prefer compliant autocracies as neighbors and takes actions to maintain this. In Belarus, protests consisting of hundreds of thousands of people broke out because of a flawed presidential election. Opposition leader Tikhanovskaya denied that the movement was anti-Russian, saying the revolution in Belarus is not a geopolitical revolution. Also stating, it is neither an anti-Russian nor a pro-Russian revolution. It is neither anti-EU nor pro-EU. It is a democratic revolution. She has said similar things to European leaders, but Russia is anti-democracy, so helps Belarus against the protests anyways. The protesters asked for an end to state violence, release of political prisoners, and free elections. Russia knows that a democratic Belarus would at some time lean west. Rule of law and economic growth are too great of draws compared to what Russia has to offer. Russia intervenes not just to be anti-democratic, but because democracy eventually leads to a loss of Russian influence. It doesn't matter that the protesters aren't anti-Russian. Their democratic goals make them a threat to Russian interests. These protests were brutally suppressed. Russia used the bargaining power it gained while helping the regime stay in power to force Belarus into a deeper integration within the Union State of Russia and Belarus that was created in 1999. Autocracies have an incentive to work together because they won't exert democracy spillover on each other and because they help each other repress dissidents and chase them across borders. They do so for political convenience and because they share illiberal values. In 2022, Russia sent troops to Kazakhstan to suppress protests. Kazakhstan is not a potential NATO member, yet Putin doesn't want democracy to bloom there. These actions match what he does at home, suppressing protests and media, even poisoning political opponent Alexei Navalny. Russia has joined forces with the other major autocratic power, China. In a joint statement, Russia and China came out against color revolutions and said they believe in democracy, but it is up to each nation to determine how democracy is implemented, and they are against the enlargement of NATO. They seem happy to see autocracies and call them democracies. Russia's interventions in Ukraine seem motivated by the same things as Belarus and Kazakhstan, democracy and maintenance of influence, rather than NATO, which is only an issue in Ukraine. All of these concerns are deeply interrelated. So although I feel comfortable saying that the prevent Ukraine from joining NATO concern, also called the military concern, is not the main one, the others are too interrelated to name one driving concern. And so is NATO. Russia desires control over other states even if they are not seen as Russian. However, Russians viewing Ukrainians as brothers creates a special desire for influence in Ukraine. The similarity of the peoples and the perceived oneness among them justifies imperial influence. Also, the tendency toward empire facilitates the feeling that it is appropriate for Russia to control its brotherly neighbors, rather than standing as independent friends. Additionally, the desire for empire naturally sends the Russian psyche searching for justifications for such control. That democracy is a threat 
to the Russian authoritarian system incentivizes control of nearby states. And without the ethos of democracy saying that it is for the people to decide, less justification is needed. That Ukrainians share much in common with Russians, and that this may ease ideal exchanges, further incentivizes Russian interference to keep Ukraine loyal. And, because democracies will tend toward the freedom and economics of the West, the best strategy for maintaining a pro-Russia Ukraine is for Russia to limit or prevent Ukrainian democracy. The fear of democracy incentivizes empire, and the desire for empire makes democracy a threat. NATO is deeply related because NATO isn't just a security threat, but a democratic, cultural, and influence threat. NATO gives countries an incentive to become more democratic. Having NATO nearby can give hope of joining and more incentive for democratization and westernization. And the United States actually saying that Ukraine will join NATO gives them the impetus to democratize and join the Western economic bloc. NATO is a westernizing force. So, the NATO threat isn't simply a threat of an invasion of Russia, but a threat of taking away Russian influence and creating potential democratic spillover from Russian neighbors. NATO military bases in Europe are less a military threat than a political one. By having a NATO base, you don't have a Russian one. Putin wants influence in Eastern Europe. He's willing to get it directly with forces or indirectly with influence over national governments using such tools as bribes, economic influence, and covert intelligence operations. This is harder in a NATO member state. NATO membership stops Russia from controlling a country. Putin has advertised himself as someone who is restoring Russia's great power status, and part of that is pulling neighbors back into his orbit. NATO prevents this goal. The EU is a similar threat, and that's why the 2014 aggression was sparked by an EU association agreement. The EU fundamentally changes countries. The accession process is a step-by-step -step progression converting command economies into mixed ones, weak democracies into stronger ones, and corruption into the rule of law. A Ukraine slowly joining the EU would become more democratic and possibly more prosperous. This would make the Russian way of doing things and those in charge look foolish. It doesn't matter if you think Russia's concerns don't actually make sense based on the reality of the situation. It doesn't matter if you're right. It doesn't matter if Russia's justifications are unjust. When it comes to predicting Russia's behavior and acting in such a way that limits the chances of harmful Russian actions, what matters is what Russia believes. If Russia believes NATO expansion or Western influence into Ukraine is a dire threat, then we can expect that they may act dangerously to prevent it. Blindly saying, NATO poses no offensive threat to Russia, or Ukraine has a right to make its own choice, will not prevent Russia from invading. It will not prevent war. Now, we could choose to say that their perceptions are incorrect or unjust, and fuck it, 
we're willing to risk war to stand by the truth or by what's morally right. There's an argument for that, but we need to realize that this is what we're doing, risking death and destruction. We risked it, and now we're dealing with the consequences. The U.S. didn't significantly compromise with Russia. It could have made greater efforts to say that Ukraine will never be in NATO, but it didn't. The West acted like it didn't properly value the risk, or it didn't care because it felt so strongly, yet not strongly enough to do any of the fighting themselves in the event of a war. Russia knew that they had the will to invade. They knew that NATO wasn't set up with forces in Eastern Europe to intervene, so our bargaining position was weak. Yet we maintained a hard line. The Western hard line likely facilitated Ukraine's stronger stance as it was promised to be in NATO one day. The West didn't want to admit the limits of its power. It didn't want to lose face in a compromise. By not doing this, it was taking a dangerous chance. The West didn't want to give Russia a veto over Ukraine joining NATO. They knew Putin may try to veto Ukraine's accession by invasion, but the West took the chance, hoping he would not do this. George Beebe, former CIA director of Russia Analysis and special advisor on Russia to Vice President Dick Cheney, acknowledged that they were aware of the risk and chose to take it. The ultimate responsibility for this outrageous invasion is on Putin. But from a foreign policy decision-making perspective, Western actions facilitated this war, and Western leaders deserve blame for decision-making that didn't work out. When a poker player takes a gamble, then that gamble loses him money. That player deserves blame for his losses. In the case of Ukraine, the West gambled that Russia would not act rashly, that it would not use military force even though it had in Georgia and had clearly indicated that Ukraine was a red line. This gamble turned out to be a massive loser, resulting in great death and destruction. What could the West have done instead? The West had the most options before 2014. Russia, while still powerful and holding a dangerous arsenal of nuclear weapons, is a declining power with a simple economy and an aging population. It's not clear that it needs to be contained. By failing to prevent Russia's lashing out, we have given a much larger threat, China, an ally by driving Russia into the arms of its ascending neighbor. The West could have decided that the risk of Russian aggression was too high and the value of adding a country like Ukraine to NATO too low. We could have told Russia and Ukraine that Ukraine will never join NATO, unless Russia joins first. The West and Russia could agree that Ukraine would forever be a neutral country. Maybe this would have put Russia enough at ease and have sufficiently tampered Ukrainians' hopes to limit both Ukrainian pushes to join the West in Russia's anxieties. Instead, we said Georgia and Ukraine will one day join NATO, but not now. This gave Russia the incentive and time to act before these countries were under NATO's protective umbrella. Giving up on Ukraine and NATO wouldn't be such a loss. France and Germany have been against Ukraine and NATO. 
fearing attempts to bring them in would antagonize Russia. The U.S. has mostly given the idea lip service. The truth is, no one actually expected Ukraine to join NATO for many years. The West could have made this more explicit. Such an agreement would also need to stop implying to Ukraine that it could one day join. Russia sees this and worries. Ukraine hears it and agitates for Western-leaning governments. NATO might have been able to give away less than a permanent no on Ukraine. Maybe a 10 or 20 year moratorium could have satiated Russia. A final part of an agreement could have been guaranteed autonomy and demilitarization for the Donbass. Instead of being open to serious compromise, the West decided to stay strong and tough, declaring that it is up to Ukraine and NATO to decide who joins NATO. This was a righteous position, but it led to war. Russia stealing territory from Ukraine in 2014 makes all of this more difficult. Stealing land from one's neighbor is a huge violation of norms and, if allowed to stand without punishment, would send a majorly bad signal. Other leaders would think, hey, Russia got away with it, so maybe I will. However, even after the land grab, the West could have tried harder to make a deal. But they were not willing to forswear Ukraine ever joining NATO. Since January 2022, Putin has said he's looking for three things. No further NATO expansion, an agreement not to deploy certain strike weapons capable of hitting Russian territory on the territories of new NATO members, and NATO to withdraw military infrastructure back to 1997 lines. He also demanded no more military assistance to Ukraine. The implications were, agree to this, or I invade. Once the Russian offer was made and Russian forces were mobilized, by not seriously negotiating with Russia, the U.S. guaranteed the Russian attack. Agreeing to it all would have been unreasonable, but it's possible that a U.S. willing to promise a neutral Ukraine could have avoided war with a more reasonable deal. Declaring Ukraine a permanent neutral country would be seriously undermining the rights of both NATO and Ukraine to decide who they associate with. For NATO, it's more of a legitimate compromise between two powers, but for Ukraine, it would be declaring that they do not get to decide who to ally with, who to be in close association with, who to fully identify with. Russia got to decide that. That's a huge cost. This also means Ukrainians being more associated with a less economically and politically vibrant power. The EU provides far more long-run opportunities than Russia, and this is a great loss to Ukrainian welfare. These are great negatives. However, so is the loss of Ukrainian territory, tens of thousands of deaths, and the leveling of cities. Even if Ukraine can somehow win in the long run, the war will result in its devastation. Additionally, Western countries are spending tremendous amounts of treasure supporting the war. So, while it's tempting to say, fuck Russian autocracy, fuck their imperial dreams, fuck their irrational fear of NATO, and long live a free and sovereign Ukraine, the consequences of standing up for this are huge. Huge to the level of risking World War III and nuclear war.
After the 2022 invasion, there is still an argument for compromise and satiating Russia. However, here, the outrageousness of Russian actions and the horribleness of the precedent set if Russia is allowed such actions without significant punishment have increased. It is now a proxy war of the West versus Russia. To compromise too significantly would both reward Russia's actions and signal to the world that the West is unable or unwilling to spend the resources necessary to stop powerful countries from invading their neighbors, even when such invasions are close to home, close to European countries, that is. Emboldening rivals and nefarious dictatorships around the world is not a good thing and could result in terrible consequences in the long run. Therefore, this is now a fight I'm willing to support for as long as Ukrainians are willing to fight and die for their land. The West should be doing what it can to defeat the aggressors, while also avoiding the worldwide devastation that would be a direct conflict. A potential counter-argument to declaring a neutral Ukraine is that Russia would have invaded anyways, and there is nothing the West could have done to prevent that. Russia has controlled or attacked Ukraine for centuries. Russia has more recently interfered in Ukrainian elections and poisoned a prominent Ukrainian politician. Russia has sought hegemony in Eastern Europe for hundreds of years. It doesn't need a pretext. Would Russia have really been a satisfied status quo power with no NATO expansion? Would their behavior really have changed from what it was for hundreds of years? It's possible that even with a compromise about NATO enlargement, Russia would find another reason to interfere with Ukraine. Russia could still claim Crimea is rightfully theirs, could claim more rights for ethnic Russians or the Donbass, and could say Nazis in Kyiv need to be removed. Any militarization of Ukraine so that it can better defend itself could be seen as a threat. This sounds plausible, but it doesn't line up with the actual series of events. The actual series of events were Russia worried about Ukraine turning toward the West and becoming a Western country. Ukraine attempting to move that way by making progress in joining the EU, pushing to join NATO, and overthrowing a Russian-friendly government. Russia taking land to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO and further westernizing. Ukraine continuing to westernize while receiving training and weapons from NATO. Russia demanding NATO to back off, and Russia invading after those demands were not met with the intent of forcing Ukraine into its sphere of influence. These series of events strongly indicate that if Russia was convinced that Ukraine would remain neutral, that Ukraine was not going to join the Western Bloc with or without NATO, then Russia would not invade. Therefore, it is reasonable that the West being more willing to compromise on Ukraine, especially before 2014, could have prevented this war and saved tens of thousands of lives. To clarify, I'm not saying the West could have made Ukrainian Western and always but NATO. I'm saying that no Ukraine in NATO, in conjunction with an overall understanding between the West and Russia, that Ukraine would remain neutral, could have lowered Russia's anxieties enough so that Russia wouldn't feel like it was losing its brotherly neighbor forever. It's not simply about NATO, but overall Ukrainian neutrality. So, even if Putin's claims about NATO's military threat to Mother Russia were a complete lie, declaring Ukraine neutral 
would have assuaged fears about Ukraine's westernization. An important reminder, both Putin's 2014 invasion and his larger 2022 invasion were completely unjustified. They were immoral, and all the consequences that result from the war ultimately fall on the head of Putin. I am merely discussing how the West may have been able to prevent this devastating war with smarter and less risky diplomacy. I'm Lone Candle. Like me, comment me, love me. Mwah.